scripture, I ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we come uh, to gain, if you will, on the very face of it, the knowledge of truth, that we may know you and trust you and walk with you in godliness. So I pray now that you would open your word to us, that we would hear it and receive it, believe it, understand it, walk in it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Titus in chapter 1. Again, Titus in chapter 1. I want to begin reading with verse 5. And read, if I might, to the end of the chapter. Uh, Titus and uh, chapter 1, please. And verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. Paul talking to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, we come together on these Sundays essentially to worship. And that comprises a number of different elements as we pray and, and pray various kinds of prayers. As we sing together to praise and and give thanks to God as we, and as we read the scripture together. And so we, we come to read the scripture together. As I was just thinking how to introduce what I'm about to say this morning, that uh, the first three questions, this, might all, this may not happen to you on a regular basis, but the first three questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism came to my mind. And so if I might just rehearse them with you. The first one is this, you know it, I'm sure. What is the chief end of man? That is, why do we exist? And the answer, of course, is our chief end, man's chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is to glorify him, that is to reflect his, his worth, to reflect his glory as we, as we worship, give him praise and thanks, and, and, and even as we live our lives, that is our lives of obedience. And that is our joy, we're to enjoy him. Uh, that's, he is to be our joy to, to um, glorify Worship, obey, anyone, anything else, is to 
at the very least, lessen our joy and his death to us at the very most. Second question then. So what rule has God given uh, uh, to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? That is, what are we to learn? Where are we to learn about him so that we can glorify him and thus be filled with this joy? The answer is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct how we may glorify and enjoy him. And so that's why we come to the scripture. And then the third question is, um, what do the scriptures principally teach And the answer is the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of him. And so as we learn about God and how we respond to him. And when we respond to him rightly based on who he truly is, then we have a life of joy, of contentment, of satisfaction, of wholeness. So that's why we come uh, to the scripture and the scripture comes to us in context. It is, it comes to us not kind of, not as a book of systematic theology even, though it's there, but what it comes to us through the lives of people. It comes to us in context of people living life. And the context here is a letter. A letter written by this man, Paul. You may know him as beginning Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the church, who, who met Jesus dramatically on a road uh, going to a city of uh, Damascus, and he uh, uh, encountered the risen Christ some time after the ascension of Jesus, but he encountered the risen Christ and was converted and called then to be an apostle. They sent forth one by Jesus with the authority of Christ. And and so, so this... Uh, Apostle Paul writes to Titus, he calls his son in a common faith, so they have this relationship, probably Paul led Titus to Christ and then also mentored him in ministry and they ministered together. And now what we find is that Titus has been left on this island in the Mediterranean uh, called Crete where there are believers and, uh, and, and Paul says, I left you there uh, for a particular purpose. For a purpose of finishing what was left unfinishing, or straighten what was what, what was crooked. Paul kind of mixes his metaphors there, so I give you a little bit of both. But he got straightening out what was left undone. Uh, it should have been sort of straightening out what was it shouldn't have been. It, this is right. I'm not. But if you want to be consistent with the metaphors, straighten out what was crooked, or finish what was left unfinished. And so we know there's work to be done here. And so he leaves Titus there, and this is his letter uh, to Titus on on how to do that, and his letter to the people and how to do that. And so we come here to learn something, particularly in this passage, about how we as the church are to live. We as the church are to live together in such a way that we can glorify God and enjoy him, that we can know him and worship him and reflect him, his worth by our worship and by our obedience. And be filled with joy. And so, so, so Paul's saying, for this church in Crete, and he would say too, for this church in Lawrence, Kansas, um, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, there are certain things necessary in your fellowship. How you're, And this is how we're organized, if you will. He puts to order something as the first account. And you'll notice verse 5 He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders 
in every town as I directed you. Now, this is for the, for the benefit of the church, so they'll know God, glorify him, enjoy him. And the reason that he, he has elders appointed, if you look in verse 10, you see the word for. So he says, I want you to appoint these elders for, in verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. In other words, he's saying they're false teachers. So, so what I want you to do is appoint these elders to protect and to guide and to lead and to teach the people so that false teachers will be expelled and silenced. Because you see, the great danger in the church is that there are those who come in to teach in what appears to be an authoritative way, that which isn't true about God. And when that occurs, everything is lost. You'll notice what happens. He says, verse 11, he says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So he says they, they shouldn't teach this. They're doing it for their own gain, but they're teaching what they ought not teach. And what this is doing is upsetting or really destroying ultimately whole families, individuals, yes, but whole families as well. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. We're going to do that if we want. But, but, but the point is that, that it was destroying the faith of people. And we see most directly about not only the false teachers, but those who reflect them. Ultimately, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And that's in contrast, for instance, to chapter 2, verse 11. This is why the grace of God has come. This is why God has called us to be his people. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous, you see, for good works. He says, listen, church, if you're to really enjoy God, you must glorify him. To glorify him, you must know him. To know him, you must have teachers who teach you the truth. If teachers who don't, then you won't glorify him because you won't know him and you'll never know the joy that you were meant to know as human beings and to live as his people, as his church. We, we know this sense of church, what, what church means. Um, you know this Greek word probably, Ecclesia, or ecclesia, depending on who taught you your Greek. But, uh, uh, but ecclesia, this sense of, of those who are ek, out of, kaleo, called out of, called out of the world to be a gathering, to be the God's assembly of his people. Paul referred to them earlier in this letter as God's elect. Jesus refers to them as the ones the Father has given me or his sheep. Um, and uh, we could go on and on about different names for church. But we, we, we understand that, that, that we are the very ones that we see gathered together who profess faith in Jesus as his church and our children together. And so, so here we are. And so how is it that we're to live in such a way that we'll be protected so that we can know God and glorify him and know the joy that human beings were meant to have in God? 
and only in him. And Paul says, foundational to this is that you're to appoint elders. Now, this isn't a new concept in the Bible. Uh, for the women of the church you're reading through the Bible, you'll encounter, they've encountered already, but will encounter. And if you're reading through the scripture and have been doing that, uh, then you will encounter this little expression called the elders of Israel. And you'll encounter it over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and it means those who are old. That's what elder means. But not simply old by chronological age, or even not necessarily old by chronological age, but those who have the wisdom of those who are old and mature, really. And they're to, to govern. In fact, God calls to task often throughout the Old Testament the elders of Israel for not properly shepherding the sheep, for not seeking the lost sheep, for not binding up their wounds. For not leading them in righteousness. For not caring for them as a shepherd should care, should really rule over his sheep. So Paul writes to Titus and he says, listen, if this church is going to flourish really, uh, then you're going to need to appoint elders to protect them. That's my way of doing it. In fact, that's always Paul's way. When I said my way, I meant God's way. But here it's Paul's way as well because it's God's way. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, we read this. Um, Paul had been out planting churches and he said, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so in the very beginning of, of, of the church, if you will, um, elders were appointed to oversee the life and ministry of those particular gatherings, those particular churches in particular places. Again, not a new concept, a concept built in the old, uh, from the Old Covenant, but now to govern the life of the church. And, and when, there were, when there were disputes in the church, <clears throat> difficulties in the church, and we find one uh, exhibited in chapter 15, uh, there was a, a discussion of how do we... They, at that time, primarily church made up of Jewish converts. How do we receive non-Jewish converts? How do we receive the Gentiles into the church? And there was a discussion about that. So how much of the laws of Moses and the stipulations and requirements that were true in the old covenant, what's, what's true now? And they're working out all those details. And so the way they worked those out in chapter 15, we read about it. There was a gathering in, in Jerusalem, verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this, about this question. In fact, so established were elders in churches is that by the time we reach Acts chapter 20, after Paul has been through uh, a couple of missionary journeys and so forth, uh, he meets with a group of elders who were from Ephesus. He wasn't in Ephesus, he was in Miletus, but they came to meet with him. And he met with these particular, uh, particular elders. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, now from Miletus, he sent... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, and then he described his own life and the life 
that they were to live as elders as well. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he he, he begins his letter like this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and, and deacons and so forth. And then, of course, we have, and we'll come back to this passage later, in First Peter in chapter 5, Peter verse 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So, Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder, not the chief elder, but a fellow elder among all the other elders. And he calls for them um, as well. So you see, this is foundational, this idea of elders. Now, when there's a couple of different words used in Titus chapter 1 for elders, and then there's a, a third one used in another place that we'll look at in a minute. So we see the word elder, which many of us know because this is kind of in our title, uh, the word for elder, uh, presbuteros, uh, which, which, which means essentially old. Um, I had a lesson in this word when I was turned 40 uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I went to see my dear friend Steve Flory, my optometrist, and he looked at my eyes and he says, you have presbyopia. And I thought he was saying that I see everything through a Presbyterian kind of lens, which is probably true. And, uh, and he says, no, 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 no. It just means old eyes. You know, your eyes are getting old and so you need these things called glasses. And, uh, and, and, and so this notion of presbyteros, meaning old, those who are the old ones among you, but again, not necessarily in chronological age. Some can be younger, but have the wisdom, if you will, and the maturity of older ones to be able to lead and guide and govern, if you will, and teach the others. And, and what elders do is oversee. You'll notice there's a word in verse 7. It says, for an overseer... And we know that word, it's the word episkopos. So you can see two denominations developing out of just one chapter of the Bible already. Uh, episkopos, it means to oversee, it comes from a word scopus, the scope out or to watch, if you will. And so what elders do is to watch. What elders do is oversee. Elders is the office, we would say, or the people involved, the men involved is being elders. And then they oversee, they, they watch out, if you will, for the church. This is a, a word that's similar to one, not similar in etymology, but similar in concept uh, to another word with which we're familiar. Paul uses it, uh, for instance, in Ephesians in chapter 4 and uh, verse 11. He's speaking of Jesus here, and he said, And he, that is Jesus, gave, if I could add parenthetically, to the church, and Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which is a word we translate as often pastors, uh, as shepherds and teachers. And it's commonly understood that those go together as shepherd teachers or pastor teachers together to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, if you will, of, of the body. And so we have that word as well, that matches this word overseers. That's what shepherds do. They watch. You know, that old Christmas carol, as shepherds watched their flock by night. That's what shepherds do. They watch. 
And not just as casual observers, of course, but they watch to make sure that their flock is protected. They watch so they make sure their, 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 their flock is well fed, you see. They watch to make sure that their flock is going in the right direction. All of those, you see, taken together. The shepherd really rules over the sheep in that, in that way. And of course, a real shepherd cares deeply for his cares deeply for his sheep so paul is to appoint these 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 elders um, to care for the sheep now there's two classifications of elders we find this in in 1 Timothy in chapter 5 and verse 17 he writes to Timothy saying let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so uh, at least we in our tradition take this and divide elders into two categories, if you will, those who primarily rule or oversee the congregation in that way and those who primarily teach. Now, what's confusing about that is that those who primarily rule also teach and those who primarily teach also rule. Oh, you see the, the emphasis of each one. Paul says there are those who, who watch well and rule well, if you will, govern the church well. And there are those then who teach well. And so, I guess, at least in our tradition as it's panned out, guys, people like me are teachers primarily and of the church and then other elders govern, rule over and, and, and watch the church, uh, if you will, uh, during that sense. And we mustn't think that those who rule over the church do in a legislative fashion. It's not that. No rule is a board of directors. Please, when you're around me, never refer to our elders as the elder board. All right? Just, just caution you. I won't say anything probably, but it might cause me to sin. Because <laughs> it's not a board, it's not a elders, it's not a board of directors that sit sort of outside the life of the church and, and kind of make rules to kind of govern it and all that. No, no, these are shepherds, these are men who are within it and have deep compassion and deep investment. It's their life to be a part of all of the church, if you will. And so it isn't a board in that sense. But they oversee, they compassionately govern. Remember, the old covenant priests, it was said, were taken from the people. Why? Well, there wasn't anybody else. (laughs) But secondly, the sense is to be taken from the people so that they would so know the people, identify with the people, empathize with the people because they are the people. Why is Jesus referred to as our high priest? Because there's a sense in which real sense in which he's like us. He was made like us. Why? Hebrews 4 says, so he could sympathize with us. He would know our weakness. And thus he could intercede for us as a priest is supposed to do. And so elders, you see, live among the people, know the people, are the people, if you will, uh, and thus can rule and lead and guide nourish and nurture people as well. In fact, if we look at this passage in 1 Peter 
chapter 5 quickly. In the English Standard Version, it begins with the word so. Uh, in the New American Standard Version, it begins with the word therefore. In the New International Version, the word is left out. But it shouldn't be. Uh, and as I read the word so, I remember from the old song, so is a needle pulling thread. And so I asked the question, what's the thread that this so is pulling? And what this thread that this so is pulling is from, at least from chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul writes, or Peter writes, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And so what Peter is setting his people up for, and some have already experienced, is that they will actually be suffering for righteousness sake. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And, and so he's saying there, there will be trials, fiery trials, and that's the implication of persecution. Fiery trials that come to get against you. So when Peter, after he lays all of that out, he comes now, he says, So, or therefore, you elders, you need to lead the people of the church through this time of suffering. You'll suffer yourself as they suffer. But you have another charge in addition to suffering well to lead them through this time of suffering. It isn't that you stand out here, but it's you're in here. And you need to be their example. And you need to teach them well. Because you see, these elders are to rule but also to teach. Notice in Titus, in chapter 1 and verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, He's to hold firm to it as the trustworthy word is taught. It's trustworthy because it's true and it's true because it was from God. And notice also that already by this time, and this is true for the whole New Testament, really, that there is some corpus known as the truth. There is some body of truth that exists. It began, you remember, in Acts chapter 2, when, when the, when the uh, new converts on the day of Pentecost gathered around the apostles and listened to their teaching, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, in fact, in the book of Romans, as Paul writes to the church, In Rome, in chapter 6 and verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, there was was this teaching to which they would be committed. It's been laid out for us, of course, in the scripture as we have it in these various gospels and letters and so forth in the New Testament in addition to what we have in the old. And so in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And so there is something that Titus knew and something that the people would know, this corpus of truth that the apostles had taught to them that had come through them and that they were They were to teach. Now, of course, then, as we come to these uh, 
this notion of appointing elders, uh, we have uh, this, 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 this question. That is, who will these elders be? I mean, who are they to be? Who are these shepherds uh, really, really to be? Well, in Acts 28, when, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus, he, 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 he tells us how these elders come to be, who they are. Verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We go, all right, how do we know who the Holy Spirit has made to be overseers? Well, it comes about generally for the, if we study the history of the church and elders and the experience I've had and so forth, it comes about in some sense what appears to be somewhat naturally. Oh, it's supernatural and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But like most things in our lives, the Spirit leads us. It appears in rather natural kinds of ways. For instance, uh, in First Timothy in chapter 3, where Paul writes to Timothy about elders, he puts it like this in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so there's a sense in which uh, the person who is to be an elder that the Holy Spirit sets aside for that task is one who, who has a desire for it. Now, not everybody who has a desire for it, obviously, is going to be called by the Holy Spirit to do that. But this is at least consistent with it. I mean, there's sometimes we desire things for the wrong reasons. That would be inappropriate. But, but, but there's some, if you desire it, that, very well, a noble task. So that's, that's part of it. But then there's something else as well. There's the call of the church in recognition of what it appears to be from this chapter and others, proven character. There's something about this man. It's, that his, we see that his character has been, 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 been proven. And as we read through this list of character traits of elders, what's fascinating is that we don't find anything that's related to social standing or position. We don't find anything that's related to vocation outside the church and one's success in it. We don't find anything that's, that, that talks about a person, a man's financial success, for instance, or the level of his education or any of that. It isn't about that. It's about his, his character and his ability, his knowledge of the word and his ability to teach it and to instruct those in sound doctrine, uh, if you will. So we see this. We've already mentioned from, from verse 9, this, this sense of holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. John Calvin, in, in commenting on this uh, passage, said a, a pastor here speaking of those elders who primarily teach needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule and those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Paul notes this double use of the scripture when he says he should be able to to both exhort and convict the gainsayers. 
So that is true. But there's also this sense of these, this proven character of these elders. And when you read down this list, and I'll read them quickly in a minute and kind of lay some things out. But when we read through this list, what's remarkable is how unremarkable they are. That is to say, in one sense, they should be true of every believer, not just these. Now, that every believer for whom these things are true will be called by the Holy Spirit to be an elder. Because implied in being an elder is some sense of leadership and all of that. But not only that, just in the economy of it. The work of the ministry isn't the work of the elders. Primarily, it's the work of the church. And so we, the, the fewer we have as elders, almost, the better. Because it frees everybody else up to really do the work of the ministry. And so what is this character? But you'll notice it begins, uh, Paul does as he writes to Titus. He says, if anyone is above reproach, what does that mean? Anyone who is above reproach means who is blameless, not unblemished, that is not sinless, but blameless. That is one uh, about whom a case can't be made that you're one who doesn't, double negative there, sorry, who doesn't uh, live out these particular character traits. These aren't true of you. In other words, it's, it's someone uh, that, that others can't come and say, oh, no, 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 no. I know this man. He shouldn't be. He isn't like that. So above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean that a man who's hated by the world could be an elder as long as he's hated for his godliness. But it does mean that someone who does not have a good reputation among us, if you will, someone who doesn't have a good reputation shouldn't be one who leads us. One person put it like this. It's not so much that he is well known, but that he is known well. Because one of the things you see about being an elder in the church, and I tell this to our elders and other elders that I talk to in other churches and so forth and so on, is that you become an elder primarily because your way of thinking is wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm saying, reflects upon Christ and his church. There's this overwhelming sense. It should be true of all of us. When you're in the grocery store line or when you're driving down the street or, or whatever it is that you're doing, you should have an awareness that you represent Christ and his church. But for the elder, you see, that, that is always there. That never goes away. That's, 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 that's a, a burden, in the best sense of the word, upon him to know, to know that. And so he needs to be above reproach. He needs to make sure that whatever he does, whatever he says, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, doesn't reflect badly upon Christ and his church. And so there's two categories of being above reproach and not have much time at all to kind of lay these things out. But you'll notice one deals with family and his ability to um, manage his family. Uh, Paul probably says it more completely when he writes to Timothy. He says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, this elder is to be God's steward. He's to be managing, if you will, the church of God as, as a father might manage his family, if you will, in the best sense. And so so he needs to, to make sure that 
He says he's the husband of one wife. It doesn't necessarily marry, mean a single man can't be an elder. It doesn't, uh, but, but it means that, that, that he's a, a person who respects marriage and all that it means. In fact, literally translated, it is just this one woman man. That is, he's a one woman man. He understands the sanctity of marriage. And thus he's not flirtatious and has no inappropriate relationships with women. But it's well known that he loves and is faithful to his wife if such she has one. And if he ever had one, he would be faithful to her. And his children, it says, their children are believers, not open to the church, charge of debauchery, of insubordination. Uh, better probably translation that his children are faithful or respectful. That's how Paul has it to, t- to Timothy. Children are faithful, respectful, not openly rebellious. And that that open rebellious could never be charged back to his parenting. And then these things that are true of himself isn't to be arrogant or prideful. Not quick-tempered, we could see how that could ruin everything. Not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, that is one who is a welcoming person. One who loves that which is good. One who is self-controlled. Who is upright, who is wholly disciplined. That's the kind of proven character that will come of this. You might ask the question, how then really can I, can I trust them, these elders? Because you see in Hebrews 13, the, the word to the church is, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. As Americans, we don't like those words, <laughs> obey and submit. Uh, the problem is if you don't like the words obey and submit, then you'll find it impossible to be a Christian. Because one of the evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5 is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a general thing, not a specific thing. It's something we do to all. We, we defer to one another in love. And here it says to leaders, you can you, you, to trust them and to trust because you see uh, they are ones who are keeping watch over your souls. That's how God has established it. And they're those who are to give an account. And therefore, the author of Hebrews says, let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. You see, you want elders who really want to serve you. And so you should submit to them, not with blind submission, not in absolute submission, but to submit to them as they submit to Christ. But submit to them in such a way that their work is a joy. That way, they'll want to do it. They'll they'll want to pray for you. Got to tell you this story. I'm running out of time, and I know it. I've told you this story before, but I have to tell you this story. When I was in seminary, Karen and Karen and I were living on seminary housing. Uh, our son Joshua was about maybe four, maybe five years old, and there was a knock at the door. And Karen and I were in another room in the, in the back bedroom and Josh was playing in the living room where the door was and knocked on the door and seminary housing was like one big apartment. <laughs> Everybody lived sort of together. So we never had the door locked. And so Joshua unlocked the door and I heard him talking to somebody and I thought it was another seminary student or somebody who lived in the apartment, the seminary housing. And, and he came back to the bedroom and he said, Dad, there's this guy here to see you. And I said, who is it? And he said... It's one of the men who used to pray for me. 
And I went out. And it was one of the elders of our church from South Carolina where Joshua hadn't lived since he was three. But he remembered that this man had prayed for him when he had an ear infection. The elders of the church, you see, who submit to Christ, love their people. And it was a joy for this man. He was on business in Boston, came to see us. It was a joy for him to see us because it was a joy for him to be an elder because it was a joy for him because the people in the church loved him. And and one of the ways that it's a joy for an elder to be an elder is if you let elders pray for you. One of the things that makes it a joy to be an elder is when you gather to worship. One of the things that makes it a joy to be an elder is when elders see that you're loving one another. You know, as a father of adult children, one of the most gratifying things to me is when I see my adult kids get along with each other and love each other. And one of the things that's most distressing is if they ever aren't. And it's the same thing. It's a joy. Trust me to be an elder in this church. It's a joy to see people who love each other and who are growing in the faith. In fact, John Donne, uh, late, what, 16th, early 17th century, what was he, poet, scholar, part-time priest, um, theologian, put it like this when he was with his congregation. He says, what seas could furnish my eyes with enough tears to pour out if I should think that of all this congregation which looks on me in the face right now, I should not meet one of you at the resurrection at the right hand of God. You see, that's what's always going through an elder's heart. The reason you can trust elders is because Jesus has established this way, but more importantly, because Jesus is the chief shepherd. That's how Peter refers to him. Jesus himself refers to himself as the good shepherd, right? That he's the good shepherd. We can trust him. Why can we trust him? Because he's the one who gave himself for his sheep. And thus, a real elder is one who always depends upon the chief shepherd and who always points the sheep to the chief shepherd and who never takes credit for anything but always gives it to the chief shepherd. Because it's the chief shepherd who is the overseer of our souls. And we can trust him. Because when the enemy came, he didn't run away. When the enemy of sin and death came at him, he did not run away, but stood his ground and took it so his sheep might live. Jesus described that on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to give myself for you. This is my body. And in the same way, he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And on this day, if I might, as an under-shepherd, point you to the chief shepherd, that you may come to him and know that you will be led in paths of righteousness. That know that even though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil. For he is with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you to know that he will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemy. He'll anoint your head with oil so that your cup will overflow and goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Let's pray, Father. I pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and you'll cause it to think upon, to cause us to think upon Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. To know that we're safe and secure in him, to know that we can follow his ways, to know that he'll make provision for us, even in this, what seems to be, a rather weak way of having men oversee our souls in the name of Christ. But may we take great confidence to know that it's Jesus who through them oversees our souls, cares for our souls, keeps us. So now I pray that as we come to this table that you would enable us have great confidence, great assurance in knowing that Jesus, the good shepherd, cares for our souls. And this I pray in Jesus' name.